G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Well, some more today on the issue of human trafficking, and this is an issue where it's an industry around the world which is absolutely huge, bigger than perhaps any of us can imagine. And some of the roots of this human trafficking go back to cultural roots in various nations. A pleasure today to be able to introduce Beryl D'Souza, who heads up the Anti-Human Trafficking Unit in India for Operation Mobilisation. Beryl D'Souza, welcome along to 2020. Hello. Beryl, you're in Australia and you're speaking to audiences about what's happening with human trafficking in India and I suspect it's a similar story in many nations where there is a a high level of poverty. When you're talking about your Indian context, is that the case that, that, that helps to... Uh, uh, to cause the uh, the human trafficking to be uh, a flourishing uh, and dreadful industry? Yes, there are multiple causes, and poverty is definitely one strong determinant. Um, India is known to be the country with the largest number of victims of human trafficking. Of the 35 million people who are slaves in the world today, it is estimated that 14 million of them are Indian, and of those 14 million, up to 90% are Dalits, which is a caste determinant. So in India, we have poverty, we have gender, and then we have the strong socio-cultural religious issue of the caste system in which the Dalits are basically outcasts of people at the bottom lo- bottomless uh, ladder, part of the ladder, and are seen as to be a socially excluded group and are marginalized and therefore are vulnerable to human trafficking. So it's people who are in the Dalit caste, which is the lowest caste in India, and that, as you say, has its religious roots. Uh, But is it the young women who are a part of the Dalit caste who are even more at risk than than that general uh, populace, male and female? Yes, and that is what um, uh, the work that we are doing back in the anti-human trafficking unit focused at, that the women, there's a huge gender, so... uh, Women are not just uh, discriminated against because of caste, but because of gender, and so they are more vulnerable to being exploited. Various forms of exploitation of the human trafficking and sexual exploitation is just one form of it. Now, one of the areas you focus on is this idea of temple prostitutes. For typical Australians, this is completely foreign to us. How does temple prostitution work in India? Yes. Well, temple prostitution is just the term that they're given. Uh, in South India, there are about 100 to 200,000 women and girls who, have been, who are today being exploited by the system of temple prostitution. They're known as Joginis in Andhra and Telangana, where I'm from. They're known as Devdasis in Karnataka. And basically, the religion is just one entry point into a form of sexual sexual slavery. Um, The first determinant, as I mentioned before, is caste, because 99% of the present-day women of the Jogini and the Devdasi system are Dalits. And then, of course, gender. And it's a socio-cultural tradition where families are encouraged to 
dedicate their daughters into this form of sexual slavery on the facade of being religiously and socially con- uh, convenient and condoned. And what happens is, is it's an entry point into the trafficking industry. It's a well-crafted, organized industry. And so either they get trafficked into the brothels of the ma- uh, major cities in India, or they end up working as sex workers in, in their own communities. And it's seen as completely acceptable if there is... Um, a poverty issue or there's a financial challenge, there's a health crisis and a financial debt, then the option is to, you know, dedicate your daughter and because this will provide you with uh, economic remembrance. So, Beryl, if I get this straight, you're working with the Jogini girls and they're better known as temple prostitutes, but this temple prostitution is condoned by Hindu religion. Is it that where its foundations come from? Yes, so the roots are in in, in the religious system of, of Hinduism, to be sure. But because India is such a, a, a country of multiple religions, the entire traffic industry is composed of people from various forms of religion. And so it's not just a religious issue, and that's why uh, our organization is not looking at it as a religious uh, uh, discriminatory issue, but more of a socio-cultural failure where we are discriminating women based on a situation that's been seen as acceptable. Tell me now about your anti-human trafficking unit with Operation Mobilisation, or OM. You're working in not only rescuing girls out of this circumstance, but also a whole bunch of other dimensions. Yes, we believe that prevention is a very key intervention, and so we do that through awareness programs in the villages. We've adopted about 100 villages where we are working with the Jogini women themselves. We are basically their facilitators, and so we've empowered the Jogini women to become leaders in their community and to act as watchdogs to prevent and to stop dedications from happening. I'm going to be giving a website address for people to be able to support the work that you're doing through Operation Mobilisation in just a short while because sometimes when we think of the way we might support missions uh, in a global sense by giving hard-earned dollars, uh, we're looking for places where that money will be spent in a way that really makes a difference in people's lives. And what you're describing for us, and I know the work of OM is just a wonderful work, but it's not just rescuing girls out of this situation, uh, girls from as young as age seven, but also these other programs that you're talking about, prevention, rehabilitation, uh, and the development of these young girls. This is such an important aspect. I guess you sometimes have difficulty communicating just how big the problem is. Yes. Um, the website that uh, we'd like to uh, give you is www.freedomclimb.net.australia.au and the www.om.org.au. Beryl, tell me about uh, what happens when you've actually put some of these girls through what you're calling rehabilitation. You mentioned that some of them actually become workers with you, co-workers helping to rescue other young girls. Yes. Well, um, the whole rehabilitation process is a, is a work in progress because once they've been victimized by the system, there are various levels of intervention required, writing, right from their medical and health problems, their psychiatric problems, and then socioeconomic empowerment, education, and then giving them uh, an economic skill to be 
economically independent uh, and then protecting them through advocacy and lobbying. So it's, it's, uh, it's a work in progress and we've realized that it will probably take a lifetime for them to be completely free and to be rehabilitated because there's so many socio-cultural things that happen that make them victimized again. So uh, we uh, provide them with legal aid to help fight uh, the legal system in India. Our legal system is is being revised after uh, the gang rape of a woman that happened in 2012. And so there's a fast track code that helps victims who've been uh, through the system and want to get legal aid. Uh, we've worked with the government in providing grants for the women to develop their lives economically, to become financially independent. Um, these are women who have multiple children but have no partners that will you know, be responsible for those children. Uh, in, some in some districts of our state, they were not allowed to send their children to school because they did not have a father's name as a guardian and you need to have a father's name. And so we were able to lobby with the local government that issued a notice that uh, the mother's name would be seen as a guardian so the kids could go to school. We're talking about a serious issue in India, an issue that seems to be far removed from us because religious foundations, which are different in India to what we are used to here in Australia, allow the way that young girls from as young as seven can be taken and turned into temple prostitutes. Dr. Beryl D'Souza heads up the Operation Mobilisation Anti-Human Trafficking Unit in India. Beryl's with us today. Uh, Beryl, we're talking about rehabilitation of these young girls. Uh, is there a, a story or two you might have of just uh, the way that a young girl's life can be changed when they are rescued out of this circumstance being a temple prostitute? Yes. Well, we have the story of Balama, who was a 13-year-old girl. When she was sexually assaulted for the first time by in a room by a stranger, she felt shocked and violated that such a thing could have happened to her. And she screamed all through the night. But the next day, her mother came and told her this was her destiny. Um, she was dedicated as a young child. And then later, uh, when she had been deflowered for the first time, and um, she was then sent to a brothel in Mumbai. And there she worked for several years. She serviced about 20 men a day. She had several miscarriages. She grew up to be a 20-year-old and was working there. Um, most of the money she made would be taken by an agent and just a fraction sent back to her family. Several years later, she was forced to return home because someone was sick in her family. There, when she went back home, she became the property of the village. Um, a high-caste customer fell in love with her, and she felt flattered. But then she got pregnant, and then he didn't want anything to do with her. Uh, and to make matters worse, her child was seen as an out, uh, a half-caste, and he was ridiculed both by her own community as well as by the other communities. Uh, to make matters worse, she fell sick. She began to develop health problems and was unable to work well. And she decided to put an end to her suffering and was going to commit suicide. Just before this happened, there were some newcomers to her village. They were Christian workers with our organization. They offered her help. They got her into a safe place. They got her health care. And then they helped her get training and education to stop and prevent the, uh, the same system from continuing for other women in her village. Um, the dignity that she got was what was most uh, new and a new experience in her entire life. She felt cared for and she felt that her life had meaning. Uh, she was helped with an economic trade as well. And so she developed a chili press machine business. 
um, so now she works with us educating women in her community and educating her, her caste members about how the system is not just um, an evil system, but it's ruining their futures of their daughters and other women in their in the village. Well, it is an amazing story of complete transformation, and that is amazing. Let me just ask you about general attitudes in India. In our last segment, you mentioned uh, recent high-profile rape convictions for men against uh, young women. Uh, Let me ask you about the general sexual attitudes of men towards women in India. Is there any uh, breakthroughs? Is there any change? What has to happen to actually change the way that men treat women in India? Yes, that's why um, we believe that caste is one determinant, but gender is a huge uh, issue in India, which is a work in progress, and um, men are are being more brought aware about how their involvement in the gender issue is. Uh, the word, if you talk about a gender-based issue, people immediately think it has to be a woman's issue and only women are involved. But as the UN is now engaging more and men, more and more men to be involved in the issue, India is doing the same thing. Um, but it because India is a country with a strong patriarchal history, and so um, India is a country where even today we've had more than. 100,000 women in the last, 100,000 female feticides happened in the last 10 decades, which is completely unbelievable. And, you know, we have sex selective abortion because of that, and it's banned in the, in, in the prenatal sex determination is banned. Um, a lot of education has to happen within the families itself uh, so that men and women are viewed as equal and seen as equal uh, citizens of our country with equal potential and equal contributions. Um, we really believe it's an education issue, um, and then of course the government has a greater onus in providing the laws to safe, to provide safe environments for girls, to have girls in school longer, to have girls access to education, to deal with issues like dowry harassment, which is a huge issue in our country as well. Um, uh, that really again stigmatizes and has exploitation of women happen. Well, this definite inequality between men and women, uh, from our Australian perspective, we can recognise something of our Christian heritage, which has given us this idea of an equality between men and women. And uh, there is something in there that does help uh, the the Christian-founded nation to have a better perspective on this. But there's a very only a very still small percentage of Christian believers in India bringing any sort of influence along those lines of equality, uh, that we're created equal in the image of God. Uh, it's difficult, isn't it, because you, you're trying to actually uh, make change where the religious foundations don't always make it that easy. Yes. Well, I think religions around the world, including Christianity, have been patriarchal. And I think Australia being more influenced by Christian culture um, is seeing more equality now. But maybe 100 years ago, the equality wasn't there. So I think it's a work in progress. And um, we've had to learn from the mistakes and failures of other religion, uh, religious thoughts as to how um, to view each other. Um, a lot of work has to happen through the church as well, where the church influences um, uh, the nation and and local culture. And so there is a stronger call for the church in India to do that. Beryl, let's come back to your role with the Anti-Human Trafficking Unit in India with Operation Mobilisation. Girls as young as seven uh, taken and made into basically village prostitutes or temple prostitutes. When someone from Australia 
uh, wants to be supportive of how they can get involved and help these young women, uh, what actually happens as, as money is given, as people are giving generous donations towards what's happening with Operation Mobilisation, what's actually happening there with that money? Um, well, the strongest work that Operation Mobilization India is doing is sponsoring children into Dalit education centers, Good Shepherd schools, which are English medium schools, where Dalits are basically given quality English medium education, and English medium education is a key determinant that enables Dalits to break out of a system of exploitation and poverty. In India, uh, we have over 25 uh, state languages, and so English is a very important language to have to uh, have a place in the job market and uh, to go to an English medium school is expensive and so having that access really helps what the leads uh, to break out of the system. What also happens is we run a shelter home for the lead, for the Jogini children to break them, uh, to prevent them from being dedicated and to you know give them a, a life that is far more that has far more opportunities we also run the awareness programs in the villages that prevents dedications and stops dedications from happening we provide medical camps and regular uh, health interventions to the jogini women and the economic empowerment and the advocacy programs well, Dr. Beryl D'Souza, when I honour you for the work that you're doing with these young women, we're talking about rescue, prevention, rehabilitation and the development of these Jogini girls who are better known as temple prostitutes. Uh, Beryl, I'll give two websites. Uh, one of those specifically, uh, Freedom Climb, uh, is uh, an issue we've talked about before on our program, but www.freedomclimb.net.au and also the uh, the website for Operation Mobilisation, which is www.om.org.au. Uh, Beryl, thank you so much for sharing your heartbeat with us today. It's a big, big challenge, and as I say, we honour you for the work that you're doing with those young girls. Thanks for being with us on 2020. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.